Did you ever wonder if spontaneous decisions could shape an entire career? Join us on our latest podcast episode of the Think and Grow Rich series as we explore Robin Berlinski's unexpected journey from first grade teacher to heading a successful seven-figure nonprofit in South Carolina. Would you like to think and grow rich? If so, keep on listening. This podcast is dedicated to those who have found their way from fear to freedom and for those who are considering undertaking this amazing journey. This is the Courage to Be podcast, and I am your host, Tanya Vasayo. Before we get into this episode, I'm thrilled to share that I'm hosting a series on how people's lives have been influenced by the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. If you'd like to learn and apply how to think and grow rich, go to the show notes to get some wonderful free resources and join the Courage to Be community. I look forward to being your guide and mentor so you can transform your life. Welcome back to the Courage to Be, where we have powerful conversations to transform your life and your business. And we are continuing with the Think and Grow Rich series. Today, we have Robin Berlinski with us. Welcome, Robin. Thank you. I am so excited to start this conversation because you run a seven-figure arts and education center. You know, it's a nonprofit. So we're coming from a different perspective. And I want to hear a little bit about your journey and how you landed in the nonprofit world. And then we'll start peeling the onion and see how you apply all the Napoleon Hill principles to the nonprofit world. So how did you get into this sector? Best journey. You're going to love this. So I'm an educator. I was a first grade teacher. And when I had my first son, who's now in his late 20s, I stayed home and was taking him to get uh, photography done at this beautiful home. It was black and white photography. And I was so excited. And I learned from this woman that she was starting a children's museum and they didn't have an educator. And would I be part of this task force to create a children's museum in Charleston, South Carolina? And as someone that doesn't like to sit still, I thought that would be the perfect thing to do while I was home with my son until I got back into teaching. So I got involved that way, very organically, very naturally by attending meetings with brilliant visionaries who could visualize this 10,000 square foot train shed that was just dilapidated in downtown Charleston in a very you know, rough neighborhood. They could visualize what it would look like. And I got really excited about the opportunity for students in Charleston and neighboring cities to come to the Children's Museum. So I stayed, I never went back to the classroom. I became the first director of education. I rolled onto um, the board And then in, I guess it was 10 years ago now, I was at the Children's Museum and I learned about this new nonprofit that was coming to Charleston based on a nonprofit in Dallas, Texas called Big Thought. And the premise of it was that as the budgets were cut with school districts, this nonprofit in Dallas called Big Thought would bring the arts back in through the funding they received as a nonprofit organization. And it was working splendidly And then CEO of Big Thought came and spoke at a community gathering at our school district here in Charleston. 
And I went over as a children's museum representative to find out how the children's museum could be involved because we wanted to provide more experiences in the schools and absolutely fell in love with the mission, which is to spark creativity, get kids out of their seats, get them dancing to learn about force and motion, theater to learn about social studies and all the things. You know, when you're at that space in your life where everything you've done has led you to this one point and you know it was meant to be, that's how I felt. And I applied and I got the job. And in 2013, I was handed a planning manual. And since that time, we've grown to a seven-figure nonprofit with programs across the state of South Carolina and a national reach with some organizations that we partner with. So that's the journey of how I got into the nonprofit world. That is amazing. I love it. So let's go back a little bit. You said that all of this happened a little bit intuitive and just organically. It's not like you said out, oh, you're like, oh, I'm a first grade teacher. I don't like my job. I'm going to, it was out the opposite. You just kind of went with the flow. And I love that part of going with the flow, because I think when we don't plan things too much, or we have an idea or a desire here, let's rewind this. You have to have an idea. You have to have an, a, a desire. You have to know what you want. And then things start taking us in different paths. It's not this linear thing, right? So I know that you mentioned one of your favorite parts of the Think and Grow Rich book is that thoughts become things. Did you have thoughts about being involved with children? I mean, obviously I'm guessing yes, because you were a teacher, you know, as a first grade teacher, but did you have previous thoughts about it? Or can you tell us a story or two of how that came about with all of these, this amazing journey that you've had. Yeah, it's interesting. I never, like you said, I never planned it, but what I did plan was something greater. I always knew where I was at the moment. I would learn. I had that growth mindset all the time and I would be open and ready when the new thing came along, whatever that was. So yes to education, yes to serving children and what I kind of threw out to the universe that happens and continuously is whatever's next, I will be ready for it and I will see it. And so for me, being a teacher was that thing when I was, you know, in my early 20s, there it was. I, here I am. I'm reaching. I'm challenging myself. I'm learning. I'm growing. And then I saw the Children's Museum and there it was again. I'm growing more because now... You know, when I'm in a classroom, I have 20 students. When I'm at the Children's Museum, we have hundreds of families and children coming through. So my ability to impact has just grown. So now I'm at the Children's Museum and I learn about this nonprofit called Engaging Creative Minds that will serve children across the state of South Carolina. And there's my next big aha moment was being open to now I can serve more children in a bigger, grander scale. So yes to the vision, but it was a general vision of education and serving. And now here I am in an education-based nonprofit, bigger than I ever dreamed. I never imagined I'd be running a seven-figure nonprofit. I don't have a background in business, but I learn and I grow as I learn. I love, my favorite quote is, I don't even know if it's a quote. My favorite saying, nonprofit, the term nonprofit is an IRS term. It is not a business model. So I encourage the nonprofits I work with 
to find ways to earn income, to find ways to bring in more grants for their programs and to really, you know, here's where that Napoleon Hill mindset comes in. It's always the believing, the positivity. You know, we never live in scarcity as an organization, no matter where our financials are. I would never go into a meeting and say, you know, we need money or we're going out of business. It's always a very abundant mindset of if you partner with us, you know, if you are interested in this opportunity to invest in an organization that is serving and impacting the children of our state, we welcome that. And together we can build up greater opportunities for students to experience the arts. So it's all in kind of the way it's presented. And I think I've droned on from your question, but I wanted to just make a point to share how that mindset really is what drives almost every decision in my career. I love it because what you're doing is helping people think outside the box too. And maybe you have some tips for our audience, our listeners of those people that are teachers, that are educators, that might not get paid what they deserve, which are a lot of teachers out there that might feel cornered because that's something that they love doing and they want to have an impact like yourself. And maybe they just haven't thought outside the box. They haven't seen the possibilities, you know, and that's why I love telling people's stories and your story in particular of how you were open be open. So what kind of tips do you have for anyone that's feeling constrained? Like, no, this is the only way because I got trained as a teacher. You know, I didn't get trained, you know, to run a nonprofit, a seven figure nonprofit. I'm sure if someone would have told you initially that you were going to run a seven figure nonprofit, you might've run the opposite direction. Like, well, I don't have the business training. I don't have this. Like, You allow your mind to give you all the excuses and all the reasons why you shouldn't step outside the box, have faith and live in that world of possibility. So what kind of tips do you have for someone that might be in that space that feels a little bit constrained, tired, not compensated for the work they're doing? Yeah. Wow. That's, (laughs) if I could answer that question, we could save the world, but I'm going to give you my attempt. So we at at Engaging Creative Minds, I use three pillars to uh, motivate and lead. I'm a servant leader. I believe that my role is to motivate and keep my staff so excited to show up every day that they give it their all and ultimately the students and teachers benefit. So my advice to teachers, so I, I do believe there's there's two, you know, if, if we had to like just simplify it, right? There's two kinds of teachers right now in the world, in my eyes. And again, this is oversimplified. There's the ones that feel that burnout and really kind of in a mindset of resentment a little bit, you know, sad going to school. And I've had that. I was at a school that wasn't the right fit for me. And I would cry every day and wipe my tears in the parking lot and go in and do my job. I get it. It's hard. It's this space of kind of negativity. And as we know, it spirals and, you know, the principal asks you to do another thing and you're exhausted and you're spiraling more. You're not spending time with your kids. It's this never ending space of scarcity in a way. Then you have the other group that in my mind, again, oversimplifying, is open and ready and kind of like, yeah, this is really too bad. It's sad that I can't make a living or whatever it is, but they are open. So there's this, what else? It's, I love what I do. I'm going to continue being a teacher. 
what else can I do? And so, you know, for me, when I was early on in my career, one thing I did quickly, and I don't even know why, I, I don't know why I went here in Charleston to the Citadel and I got my master's degree in education. There was no end game there at all. I don't even remember having that decision happen in my head, but I went and got my master's degree. Well, my salary went up a little bit, but what opened the door for me was when a fellow educator in my school who also uh, was a teacher at the College of Charleston, went on maternity leave. Her substitute didn't just canceled on her last minute. She showed up at my door to teach her class. And I have been there ever since. And that was 1995. So now I have this additional income. I can teach a class at four o'clock. I can teach my, I can, you know, go to school, teach my first graders, go to, you know, four o'clock, teach my class. And then now I would love to know what my life would be like if the webs, the internet was around when I was going through this phase of figuring out what's next, because the opportunity for student or for teachers to do all kinds of things. I know teachers pay teachers is out there, but there are so many like tutoring opportunities. Zoom has given us this wonderful platform where parents trust the system because their kids learned on it for two plus years. And so thinking of a way to get kids together and maybe do a 12-week course and have the kids sign up and it's like tutoring, but it's on a grander scale. And I'm just throwing ideas out there, not saying this is an answer, but what I'm saying is to have that mindset of what if, and going back to those three pillars at our organization, one of them is to that we always operate in a space of yes. And what that means is not we're saying yes to everything. I'm not saying every time someone wants you to run an errand, you're like, yes, because that's where we burn out. What a space of yes means is we're open. So at first, it may sound incredibly crazy. It may sound like I don't have time. I'm not good enough. How will I get there? How would I do it? Where would I find the customers? You know, we can beat ourselves up with questions after questions after questions, but I would challenge them to operate in a space of yes for one semester when they're feeling that angst and anxiety and scarcity and negativity that maybe just grab a hot cup of tea and some Spotify music with like spa sounds and get your favorite socks on and a blanket and just breathe and think and meditate. What could this look like for me? And what would I feel when I was in a space where I truly was being an educator, which is what my heart wants me to do and, you know, serving other people in other ways. So kind of just being open and having that growth mindset. I love it. Yeah. It's so important. I love how you're just including this idea of living in possibility, being open, being in that yes mindset. It's just beautiful because that's when you are open, that's when the opportunities start coming. And I'm a big believer, you know, and just, you have to be ready and you, you're ready by preparing your mind with this. That's fabulous. Those are great tips. Thank you for that, Robin. What about another thing that I know that stood out for you and think and grow rich and the principles and in the book is this whole story of stopping three feet from gold. Can you share with us what you liked about that story? How has it shown up in your life? Or if you have any particular stories with it? I do. That honestly, of the entire book, 
That is anyone who knows me will say, I say it all the time, whether it's my kids looking for their keys. <laughs> I'll say literally you're three feet from the gold. Keep going. It is my phrase. I love it. So I'm working with two beautiful nonprofits that are starting out. They have not received their 501c3 designation letters yet from the IRS. They're babies, they're babies, and they have so much potential and so much vision and so much passion. And I'm working with them once a week. And I have it very natural as conversations because I want to address things that come up as they come up. And so they'll talk to me about different things, whether it's trying to write a grant, you know, when you don't have your 501c3 um, status with the IRS, you can still write grants if you go through a fiscal agent. So I've been working with them. They've both secured a fiscal agent, which is great. So now we're jumping into uh, writing grants. Well, a few weeks ago, this was a challenge for one of them. There were a couple opportunities that fell through. It felt really just like it wasn't going to happen. They didn't feel there was another place to go. You know, sometimes we live in our little bubbles of isolation, wherever it is we live and the world is so big. Um, And so they were getting stuck and I could see it because I'm 30,000 feet. I'm looking down, I'm seeing all of it. And I said that to them that, you know, please don't give up. You are literally three feet from the gold. And this is when it gets messy and sticky and icky. And when you're feeling it and it's pulling on you, that's when you're there. That is when you're there. And I think it was a couple of days later, I get a text message with all the like confetti and woohoos. They got their fiscal agent. And I believe it was like letting go of the, I have to have it. I have to have it. And I always think of this song. What is it? 38 special from the eighties. Hold on loosely and don't hold on loosely. Um, Cause if you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. And that's kind of what I feel sometimes when I'm working with nonprofits is they cling too tightly to the need and they operate from scarcity instead of letting it go and feeling confident that they're digging in the right place. The gold is right there. It's on the other side. It's so close. And I love seeing that come to fruition. Another time I use it a lot is at work at Engaging Creative Minds when we're doing different programs and developing out new curriculum and, you know, operating with summer camps going on across the state, it can get really um, detailed and it can feel like we, we just can't keep knocking on these doors. If school districts aren't responding, they don't want us. It's okay. We can walk away. But I always tell my staff that it's not that they don't want us. Everybody is operating in their own life. And a no doesn't mean a no, it means they're busy or they they just haven't seen your email or seen your message. You know, sometimes I think people interpret silence or a no as, you know, we don't want you when it really is, they're overwhelmed and super busy. So I ask and I challenge my staff and really all the nonprofits I work with to rephrase it and reframe the questions when you reach out to, we're here to solve a problem for you. And so when we reach out to school districts now with a summer camp that we know prevents summer learning loss, we no longer say, "Would you? are you interested in hosting a summer camp? We say, would you like to prevent summer lo- learning loss? And would you like us to support you in those efforts? And 100% of the time we get a yes, because it's all in the phrasing and you wanna serve, you wanna, you know, we're here 
to make other people's lives easier, not give them another email to answer or another phone call to return. And so it's changing that space of the presentation, but also remembering we're three feet from the gold. If you just phrase it another way, it's going to come to us. And it always does. That's fabulous. I love those stories. We're going to take a minute pause and we'll continue with our interview. I want to invite you to something amazing. Starting on Wednesday, November 28th until December 1st, we will be hosting a four-day prosperity summit based off of Napoleon Hill and Reverend Ike's teachings. The summit will be featuring stars from the movie The Secret like Joe Vitale, Michael Beckwith, and other visionaries like Mark Victor Hansen, who's the co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul book series. During the summit, you will gain tools to master the art of positive thinking and goal visualization. This summit is perfect for coaches, consultants, professionals, and business owners ready to sow the seeds of abundance in both the personal and the professional realms. Don't miss this life-changing event. And if you can't make it live, which will be at 9 a.m. Pacific and at noon Eastern time every day, still register because you'll get access to all of the recordings. Just go to the show notes and get yourself registered. I look forward to seeing you there. So how do you motivate your staff, Robin? Because that, the story that you just mentioned, you know, of rephrasing how they're approaching people, you know, we were talking and it reminds me of one of the other principles that's in the book. You know, I don't know if it's chapter eight or nine of persistence and the importance of persistence, you know, and having to, kids are really good at this. I have my 10 year old that is the best persistence person in the world. Her persistence level is like out there. It, it exhausts me, but I learn a lot from her. And so I love that you share that with your staff, you know, like to not give up, to continue, you know, like that is just tied in with not stopping three feet from gold. And if you haven't read the, the book and you don't remember this story, it was all about a guy in Colorado that bought everything, like all the equipment to mine the gold in Colorado. And they couldn't, after a long time, I don't know how, if it was months or years, they couldn't find the gold. So he gave up and he sold all the equipment to someone that didn't even know about it, but he found the right engineers he found the right people and he sold that equipment for dirt cheap. And the person that was there, I think he moved back to the East coast. I can't remember. I have to go revisit that story, but this other person that bought all the equipment for dirt cheap, he hired the right people, the engineers, they looked at everything and they ended up finding the gold. And when they did find the gold, the other man had stopped three feet from gold. That's where that saying and that story that Robin's talking about, but I'm very curious, how do you motivate your staff? Because just that story was wonderful to hear. And I'd like to hear some more things for those of us that are leaders, teachers, that we work with other people. Oh my gosh, this is my favorite question because it's what I think I'm most proud of with the organization that I serve on is that our staff is so happy. They're so productive. And it's really about creating a culture with where they feel safe. So I'll tell you my favorite things. So one is that, you know, you hear people say, make mistakes. We appreciate mistakes and we live by it. We truly celebrate mistakes and how we do that is really intentional. So when something happens, our expectation is you own it. You own it quickly. Okay. I forgot to send this invoice for $10,000. Now we can't do whatever. Like I forgot. 
Okay, you forgot. There you go. Let's own it. Okay, let's take care of the situation. So we'll get the invoice out. Like we do whatever needs to be done to quote, fix the mistake. Then we come back. We are always going to revisit a mistake. So tell me how it happened. So then the, again, there's no shame. There's no blame. And my staff is so used to doing this. It's routine. It's so easy for us now. They literally just will call or email and say, I just did this. So we say, how, you know, where did it go wrong? What happened? Then once we figured that out, we put a system in place so that it doesn't happen again. So I tell my staff that if you are perfect or try to be perfect, you are not doing a service to our organization. In fact, you're doing a disservice to our organization because you're covering up what could be a policy or a procedure that we can put in place. So as we scale and grow, we can you know, be able to not make those mistakes on a grander scale. So celebrating mistakes is embedded in our culture and no one feels shame. Everyone steps up, they do it quickly, and we immediately talk through how to make sure it doesn't happen again. So there's that. Another thing I love, and I would challenge any organization to do this because this is absolutely a way to shift the entire organization is we talk behind people's backs. So we've changed the way you feel about talking behind someone's back. And we encourage it because talking behind somebody's back when you're praising or saying something great about them is really the highest level of praise because you're not saying it because they're in the room. You're saying it because someone did something truly remarkable that impacted your day and you want to tell me or someone else about it. So I will get emails or phone calls from staff members saying I need to talk behind someone's back and I get really excited. Ooh, I can't wait. Tell me what it is. And they'll tell me something. And now we're really not looking for somebody like I brought my coworker flowers or, you know, I paid for lunch today. Those are great. Like that's a cherry on top. You can take it or leave it when you get your Sunday. It's fine, but it's just the cherry on top. The real Sunday, the beauty of talking behind people's backs is when you step up and help somebody when they're in a hustle and you're in a lull and you've got the time and you've got the energy and you can help them do something that's putting them behind or you can step up and quickly address something that they maybe forgot so that it doesn't turn into a huge mistake, but you can fix it later. So it's all the ways they support each other as a staff. They talk behind each other's backs and it has become this beautiful space where if you feel like if you go to bed and you have a stomach ache, you know, you had something happen, there was a conversation or something at work, that's your sign that the next day you need to have a rumble and you need to have a rumble quickly and you need to seek to understand. So you'll schedule it just like it's Brene Brown, schedule it, meet, talk about it, seek to understand. This is how I felt when this happened, and I just want you to understand so that we can get back to our mission and focus on the organization because you know we're not a sorority, we're not a fraternity, we're not here to be best friends. We're here to support and respect each other and focus on our mission. And my staff loves this because they now, like when pre-COVID, we're remote now, but before COVID, when we were in an office, they would literally play that song. I think it's like a basketball song or a sports song, like get ready to rumble. Like we're ready to rumble. And I would hear this music blare through the office. And then two people would go in a room and close the door. And it made it like more natural to have difficult conversations because let's face it, no one loves conflicts. Like it's not fun. But as soon as you address it, the organization is better for it. 
And something I always say is in a rumble, there are no winners. You're not coming with your defense. It's not a legal, you're not gonna present your case. There's no jury. The only winner of a rumble is our organization because our organization is better because you had this conversation. So don't come to a rumble ready to win because you can't. People don't win, the organization wins. So that's my advice is to really, you know, I see so many leaders of nonprofits in the business and not on the business. That's where you feel scarcity. That's where you feel like you're putting out fires every day. You work 12, 14, 16 hours a day. There's burnout. That is not necessary. It does not have to be that way. If you work on the business, you will build a culture where your team will create the kind of energy that brings in funding. It brings in your customers, the people you serve. It just all comes to you because you are open to all of that in a very positive, like your vibe, your energy is very positive. These are amazing tips. I have to go back and re-listen and I can just feel your energy, Robin, is just fantastic. There's a couple questions that have shown up from this. The first one's what do you consider the difference between working in your business and on your business as you're saying that? Yeah, that's great. So we used to take field trips. We would call it a field trip. Every month, I would take the staff to another organization in our area that did something. It's nonprofits and didn't have to be arts and education. We've been to a homeless shelter. We've been to animal shelter. We go to friend raise, not fundraise, friend raise and talk about missions and possible collaborations. We talk about struggles. We talk about anything because in life, really relationships are key. Relationships, people give money because of relationships. People invest in programs because of relationships. People sign up for programs because of relationships. Relationships are being on the business. Relationships are what builds this kind of energy where people outside your organization are championing for you and advocating for you without you even being in the room. It's like those people that say they have that passive income, they make money while they sleep. Well, when you're friend raising, you're making friends while you sleep and you're being on the business. You're not struggling every day. We have so many great friends outside of our organization that sometimes when they don't qualify for a grant, they'll send it to me because we have that connection and they want to see us succeed because we're cheering for them. A few weeks ago, we went to our state capital. South Carolina has an award every year through the Riley Institute at Furman University. It's called What Works South Carolina. And three organizations this year, there were four because there was a tie. Three organizations become finalists and they are voted on by a a great team of judges. And then there's this award once a year and they get a $10,000 prize. And it's just this beautiful assembly of people around the state celebrating great work. Well, I take my team every year. We were a finalist in 2016. We lost to a great organization that works with puppies. So I wasn't sad because the puppies won, but we take our team up every year to cheer on people from across the state. And they see that energy feeds into their energy. And it's this instant connection that we care about your work and we want to be here for you and support you. And some people may argue, well, now you've got all those emails back at the office you're not getting to. And now you've got the grant report you didn't write and all these, you know, everything's building up. But my answer to that is 
When you're on the business consistently, those things don't build up because slowly as you build friends and as you build momentum and as you increase or, you know, change the type of energy, you transform the kind of energy that you're putting out into the community, it gets easier and easier because all those things get taken care of for you. Amazing. I love it. I love that distinction. I am going to have to borrow, how did you call it? The friend raising instead of fundraising. I do love that. And it's so true. It fosters a mission that I've been on for many years of encouraging collaboration versus competition, you know, and just not feel like, oh my God, they're competitive. You know, like if you go into a networking group, like they're going to get the grant if we become friends with them or something, you know, it's like, no, how about we work together because maybe one of their staff will end up coming to work with us, or maybe we help them raise more money and they help us and new ideas come out of it. That is fantastic. I love your philosophy and your approach to it, Robin. And so this brings me back, you know, because I wanted some clarification with working in the business versus on the business. I bet you, you don't have a big turnover that your staff's been with you. You said you started here in 2013. How many people do you have on staff? There are eight of us. And how long have they been with you? Well, we grew, you know, we were new, we were a small organization Mm -hmm. of one, (laughs) me. And so we, we would grow as, you know, it's like the snowball. We pick them up as we go. I will say that we've, we have employees across the state because we have after school and summer programs. So we have, I think in June, we onboarded 200 employees. I laughed that we're like the biggest employer in South Carolina, which is a joke, but it's just that people don't leave people. You know, we, again, we love that we have a a culture that recognizes or celebrates the, I call it the lull, which is the time when you don't, all your projects are done and you're sort of just organizing your drive. We embrace the lull as emphatically as we embrace the hustle. So we're, we're in the middle of planning 13 camps and 10 after school programs. And like, you feel like your hair's on fire. We embrace that because we know that when we're in a lull and we work four to five hours a day and we're just, it's okay. We celebrate that. So no one is going to get an award for burning it all night, you know, 24 seven. Like we don't reward that. That's not a celebration. We reward you taking time. We respect paid time off. I will never email when I'm on vacation because I want my staff to see that I do not expect them to check emails when they're on the road. I don't expect them to answer my emails on Thanksgiving day. You know, I want them to see me also spending time with my family, rejuvenating, coming back fresh and ready. Um, A big shift for a lot of my staff, even the ones that have been with me forever, is that Sunday afternoon feeling, the Sunday like, oh, we have slowly talked ourselves through that when I said, what are you dreading on Monday? And they realized like nothing. I love what I do. I'm like, what am I dreading? It's this, you hear the 60 minutes clock ticking and you're like, oh, I have to go to work tomorrow. So we've shifted this mindset again to say, no, it's just a new beginning. It's your Monday through Friday joy. And then you have your Friday through Sunday joy. They're both joyful. Like you should celebrate Sunday night as much as you celebrate Friday night. It's just a shift in how you spend your day and who you who you spend your day with. And that has been really life-changing for several of my staff who have 
kind of been in those patterns of feeling that Sunday blah. And it's life-changing when you can really truly think that every day you wake up and you decide to come to this space that you call your job, you make that decision. And I also make the decision. I make the decision that you belong here. I make the decision that you respect our culture enough to spend time with us Monday through Friday. And every day we wake up and decide. So nothing is a guarantee because our culture is what's most important and no one wants to you know, ruin that feeling of being in this culture that really is inspiring us. I have had staff tell me like, it's like therapy to work for you. I love it. That it's just such a great sign of an amazing leader. You are an amazing leader. And I, you know, just hearing all these different tips and how you encourage your team and your staff and the people you work with, you know, it's amazing. I just want to commend you for that because it, it requires a certain type of personality and vision. You know, it's not just the, because you're creating that culture, like you said, do you have a booklet or something that talks about the culture, you know, with, the mission and, you know, I don't know, like these systems. Cause I mean, there's some, like I said, I have to go back and re re listen, you know, to all these different tips you're giving of how to lead your team. Do you have something put together that you hand them when they come and work with you or no? Yes, we have an employee manual. We do. And I also bring them in to have the conversation. We talk about how it may not be a fit for you and that's okay that will, you know, we call it bless and release. If it's not a culture, if you're coming at things defensively and you struggle with admitting mistakes and you have a long email explaining why the invoice didn't go out, like that's just way too much for us. Like we can't operate like that. It's too ego, leave your ego. And if you can't let go of your ego, it's okay. It just means there's some other space for you. So we have a very kind way of releasing the bless and release. I do. So we have our employee manual. We have that conversation and I created a, like my 10 tips for nonprofit abundance. I'm still working on it, but it's almost ready. And there's actually eight bonus tips. So there's 18 tips for things like working on your business, not in your business and other tips that I really, really, really believe is the difference in having a nonprofit that is seven figures employees that want to stay and an engaged board. I love my board. So it's like everything is just so abundant and beautiful. And I share that in my 10 plus eight guidebook. I love that. We'll definitely have that. As soon as you have it ready, we'll put it in the show notes too. So we'll update it for anyone that's listening to this a little bit later. It's fabulous. I love that you're willing to share with other people what you've learned and how how to lead with heart, because that's what I'm getting from listening to you, Robin, and getting to know you better. Another question I have for you is, how do we stop that scarcity mindset versus having an abundance? Yeah, I love that. I actually am working on a course called Income for Impact. And that is what we address. It is a mindset and it is okay. So I've been in a several times in a room of, you know, a funder might have a webinar or an in-person workshop and nonprofits from around the community go, and it feels like the hunger games and it's really icky. And it's this, like you were saying earlier, like we're knocking each other over to get to the person to have a conversation 
and it's for like, you know, whatever the amount is. And I will walk out because it's not the energy I want to be in. It's very draining. It's very competitive. You know, I don't know whether it's my personality. I get drained. And when I'm drained, I'm not my best leader. I'm not my best self. So I need to take care of my energy. I need to be in spaces where I feel alive and abundant. And so I instead will spend my time having conversations with people in organizations that I respect. I will spend time on social media, seeing what other nonprofits in arts education or in the summer field, after school field, what are they doing? What conversations are they having? I will reach out to them. I would rather have an hour call with a random executive director of a nonprofit in Wyoming, just trying to like friend raise with that person then spend an hour in a room with a potential $50,000, you know, grant. I will tell you my story. This is my great story about abundance and scarcity. When the children's museum was first opening target had just come to Charleston. I don't even know if they had opened yet. And they had sent out a, I don't even know, RFP to all the nonprofits that they were opening up a grant cycle and the maximum grant was $2,000. So everyone, everyone was just like in droves finding out more about the $2,000. And I remembered (laughs) that to me was an opportunity. And I remember that I called, I, I don't even know how I got the number. I called Target in Minneapolis and I told them that I was gonna be in the neighborhood on this date these like three dates and could they meet with me? And this guy said, oh, sure. My, um, the board, (laughs) the board chair the executive director and me, I was the director of education, flew to Minneapolis, met with this person and these other people. And again, this was in, I don't know, 2000. And we walked out with $50,000. I love it. I know it's, you know, that's abundance. Abundance is saying $2,000 is amazing. That is so great. Target is amazing. $2,000 can do a lot. It's not enough. It's not good enough. What else can we do? Target's amazing. Let's go up there. Let's meet with them. So it's the abundant mindset is not about having it all. It's about knowing where to look for more. And it's about believing it's there. And it's really where it stems. Like the heart of abundance is believing in your soul that your nonprofit, your mission, and why you wake up every day makes such a difference that you need to get out of bed and champion those people who need your services, you are representing them and you will get that fire like nothing else. When you can walk into a room and say, you know what, if you invest in this, this will happen. And these are the lives that will change. And I am proud to stand before you and represent those people. Now, how much would you like to invest? Fantastic. I love that story. I love that you're holding again, it ties in with another one of Napoleon Hill's principles in the book. I mean, if we really were to detangle everything about self-development, about having this growth mindset, abundance mindset, it all stems back to this book that was written over a hundred years ago, because Napoleon Hill talks about faith so much. And like you were saying, it's the believing, you know, that's such a clear example. $2,000 is great. And I love how you worded it, but 
I believe that we deserve more and we're going to walk out with more money. And we got $50,000. I mean, amazing. I love these stories. That's why I'm doing this series because I just love hearing these stories. I love that. Fantastic. So I'm shifting gears a little bit. You said that you're 60. You do not look like you're 60, Robin. For anyone that's listening, (laughs) if you're watching on YouTube, you can see that Robin does not look like 60. And I know it's because of your spirit and I can sense your energy. You you do not have the age of a 60, of a biological 60 year old. Let's just put it that way. When I turned 60, I announced to my children, get ready, kids, because I'm embracing my third act. And I love that. And so what are your share with us your three pillars of how you look like you're not 60 and (laughs) how you carry this and your spirit? Oh, my God. What are the secrets? um, I live in a constant state of gratitude. I am just so grateful for everything. And we at our nonprofit write handwritten thank you notes all the time. That's like a daily thing for anything and everything. We send sympathy cards. We send congratulations. We scour newscasts, radio, anywhere, newspapers where someone in our community was promoted, advanced, won an award, whatever it is. We're sending, you know, woohoo card. We're grateful for you. We're so glad that you, this happened. So constant state of gratitude. The other piece that I mentioned that ties into is kind of connected is we embrace a woohoo spirit, which is, I think the age, you know, we celebrate, we are working with school districts that historically are underserved They are in a space of a lot of behind, you know, the students are struggling. And when we walk in with our woohoo spirit and we say, it's okay, you know, for six weeks, we're going to have bubbles and music and we're going to dance. And, you know, they realize there's hope and hope is a driver of success. So embracing a woohoo spirit is something that I truly believe in with my kids, you know, my family, my organization the constant state of gratitude and then operating in a space of yes. A few things we say at the office, these are nice little words. I think all your listeners should start using is a phrase I use all the time is it's a blip. It's a blip. So like, don't get all caught up in any, anything. Like we actually like in real time right now, we may lose our lease that we have. It's a blip. Who cares? We'll just get another place. Like nothing. There is nothing that is going to trip us up. We have had funding pulled. It's a blip. We'll just have more funding. Like what? Nothing. There's nothing. I had a nonprofit, a person from a nonprofit called into my, my podcast. It's a radio show called in and said, I work for a nonprofit. We have a very toxic director, but I can't leave. The nonprofit will crumble. And I said, will it? It's a blip. Like, I know that you probably are great at what you do, but heads up, buddy, you're a blip. Like I could leave tomorrow. ECM would be fine. I'm a blip. We're all a blip. It's a blip. We do the bless and release. Like sometimes it's not meant to be like not everybody that starts working stays working with us and it's okay. It's a celebration of you tried, we tried. It's not meant to be. We wish you the best bless and release. Let's move on. What's next? So it's all of those things where nothing is like, I'm not clinging to anything. And I'm open to everything. I used to say I'm I'm Buddhist. I'm attached to nothing, open to everything. And in a way I am. And I think that's what makes me roll through the day with joy and gratitude and abundance. Great tips for all of us that are going into different decades. I love it. And 
I have one more question too. Well, first off, where can people find you? Yeah. So I'm big on Instagram, not big, like don't get too excited. <laughs> I do most on Instagram. I'm at Robin underscore Berlinski and it's R-O-B-I-N and Berlinski is with a Y. And then my website is thelearningring.com. Perfect. We'll put those in the show notes too, for anyone that's listening and walking or doing something else. And yeah, I wanted to ask you going back to the friend raising, which I love that term. I'm taking so many inspiration moments here from our talk together, Robin, that I'm going to start applying in my life. And I praise myself. I do pretty good with gratitude, abundance, and I have all my, you know, box of jewels too, but I've learned so many new ones. I have new jewels to put in my box from you. So how many hours do you spend friend raising a week? Honestly, it's not linear. It's not measurable because it's always, it's whatever I'm doing. I'm friend raising. It's natural conversations. It's, you know, there's no time where I'm like, I'm friend raising now. It's sort of like breathing. You don't say I'm breathing now you're breathing, you're breathing all day. So I cannot answer that question, unfortunately. But you answered it perfectly. It's like breathing. I'm a big believer in that too. And it's funny because the word for me this year was connection. And I just wanted to connect with more people. And it's the bottom line of friend raising, you know, and I've met so many incredible people this year, which I still don't know where it's going to take us. It'll be one of those that you can only connect the dots looking backwards. So I love it. And you're one of them right now, you know, just having you on the podcast is, has been fabulous and I, I love it. As we're wrapping up, I'd like to ask you what's one tip that you can leave the listeners to live a life with more courage? To live a life with more courage. Oh, wow. I think listening to what's right, like, you know, when you're off and I've done a lot, you know, in all my years, I've done a lot that didn't feel right. And I did it anyway, because I thought it was supposed to be that way. And I would say, always follow your gut and what feels right for you as a person, because, you know, it's, there in life, we, every decision isn't always a right one and a wrong one. Sometimes it's two right decisions and they're both waiting for you. You have to decide the one that's right for you. And if 99 people take the one side, it doesn't mean that you're wrong to be the only one to go the other way. It just means you're built differently and you have to follow what works and feels right. And that gut feeling is really that true intuition. I wish, you know, (laughs) if I could do it all over again, I would tell my younger self, make those decisions based on what feels right, not what everybody else is doing. It's the sheep, right? I don't want to be a sheep. I'm not going to follow the the herd. Fantastic. Wow. This has been amazing, Robin. I so appreciate your time, your energy, your spirit. You've been great. Thank you so much. Right back at you. It's been fabulous. Thank you so much and to be continued. I am so grateful that you joined me today. If you enjoyed it, there's one thing I'd like you to do. Click on the follow button so you don't miss a single episode. Leave me a rating and a review and please share. As my way to thank you, email us a screen grab of your review at the email in the show notes and we will send you a free Crafting Your Future guided visualization, which is so simple to do with outstanding results. It will empower you and give you the confidence to attract and create the life you've always desired. See you in our next episode.